Museums, and uh, we have a great uh, relationship in that manner. And um, we've been able to see many people uh, come to know the Lord because they were uh, exposed to actual truth uh, and coming out of the evolutionary thought process uh, and coming to the Lord. And it's been a blessing to be a part of that. And then uh, we'll be in Zechariah chapter 12. You want to start turning there. And then, of course, we have the Issachar Report. It's a, a prophecy ministry that uh, out of our, our, our ministry there. I'm, I'm out of my local church. Uh, we're not a ministry outside of the church. We're a ministry under our church. I uh, want to make sure you understand that. Uh, we, uh, many prophecy ministries, many evangelistic ministries are outside of the authority of a local church. I, I pastored for so many years and uh, I'm convinced that uh, it's a local church that has the authority. And so that's where uh, we work out for money. My son is my pastor. And uh, uh, of course then we have the television program. Uh, Brother Dan Goodwin and I, we, he's the host, I'm the co-host, uh, we joke about it, uh, he's the charisma and he's got the smile and the energy and I have the smarts, but that, we joke about that, and, but uh, every time somebody writes a comment and says, uh, uh, Brother Dan, I wish you'd let, let the good doctor finish his statement, and uh, we joke about it all the time, but we have a great partnership. And we just have a program that just tries to stay with Bible prophecy. We're not trying to tell you about the UFOs and aliens and, and the return of the giants or Nephilim. And uh, we're not into it for selling materials. We have materials available, but we just want to expose biblical truth because people need a biblical answer. Uh, we get a lot of questions uh, sent our way because of the television program all over the world. And uh, to be able to give them Bible answers, uh, to me, is, uh, is uh, very comforting to my spirit. Uh, not to give them what I think about it, but this is what God has said about it. And that's why our, our purpose for that ministry. And um, uh, we have, this is our, our headquarters for all of our ministry. God gave us uh, a few years ago an amazing thing that God did uh, and how he done it. Pray with us. We need to put a new roof on the building. We need about $15,000. Uh, uh, we got a few leaks and you know how leaks go. I noticed uh, a spot there. Amen. <laughs> well, we got a bunch like that in some of our building, but uh, uh, God's going to provide. He always has. And so uh, one of the things that uh, the Issachar Report is all about is uh, we, we call it the Issachar Report because uh, uh, in, in the Bible we're introduced to the Issachar band uh, and the tribe of Issachar. And they were the ones when it was time for David to be placed in as king they were the ones who knew and had an understanding of their time and knew what the people ought to do. And so we try to give an understanding of the times in which we're living. If you have found Zechariah, go ahead and stand. Let me just tell you a little bit about our table. There's a book back there called The Edge of Dawn. It's seven prophetic passages brought into our time and uh, we're at the edge of the dawning of the day of the Lord. That's why it's called that. And then uh, we have a, a, a message back there. The, there's nine recorded Bibles in your Bible. Wars yet to take place. Nine wars yet to take place that are recorded in your Bible. We have those in sequential order. And then a message on Iran 
and their nuclear program. It's in the 49th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, by the way. And then we have a three CD set on the Christmas story, 28 years of research, uh, full of biblical and historical and archaeological discoveries. I think it'll change your Christmas if you ever listen to it. If you found Zechariah chapter 12, we'll begin in verse number 1, and I want you to pay attention as we read through at the statement. Uh, we talked a little bit about it a few moments ago in the question and answer time, but look with me at the times when it says the day of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord uh, for Israel saith the Lord, of which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about. When they, shall, uh, when, they say, uh, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces. Uh, through all the, the, all the people of the earth be gathered together against him. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will uh, open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every ho uh, horse of the people uh, with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, uh, uh, the inhabitants uh, uh, of Jerusalem shall be my strength and, and uh, in the Lord of hosts their God. And in that day will I make the governors of Judah like the hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath, and they shall devour all the people round about. Outside that I have written Psalms 83. You there find the battle he's talking about. And he said, and on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited. That's now, amen. Again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. And he goes on at least a dozen times between here and the next chapters, in that day. Anytime you see that phrase, in that day, you are talking about the day of the second coming of the Lord. It's a term that is very broad. In that day, we would cover any time from the rapture through the tribulation to the actual second coming of the Lord, the millennial reign, and eternity and its kingdom beyond. Those are all a part of the day of the Lord. So when you read that statement, you have to keep it in its context where it is to know which part of the day of the Lord you're looking at. So tonight, that's our little tidbit of your study, amen, in that area. Let us pray. Father, tonight we thank you uh, for the privilege that we have to be assembled together. Thank you for the good crowd of folks. Thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. And Lord, we thank you that uh, tonight we've been able to lift our voices in praise and adoration. We certainly do have victory in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that <clears throat> you'll now quiet our spirits and in the next moments would you give us listening ears and hearts and that are open, receptive, and, and uh, uh, may we see spiritual things. Spirit of God, please be our teacher tonight. I yield to you 
uh, guide my thoughts that I will say what needs to be said tonight and Lord things that might not need to be said help me not to even think of it God would you please direct tonight and may everything that's said and done be for the purpose to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus in his name with thanksgiving we ask it all amen may be seated tonight I want to deal with the subject of the Middle East conflict. I've come to discover that in the last almost 10 years now of, of holding prophecy conferences across the country and even in other places in the world, I've come to an understanding that very few people have a real handle on what the Middle East conflict is all about. It's a news item every day in some news outlet in the world. There's not a day goes by, but not something is centerpiece concerning Israel, its neighbors, the Middle East, the Palestinians, and all of these things. I had a question asked uh, to me yesterday, uh, I don't remember when, but somebody wanted to know about the Palestinians, and, and I said, do you, you know there is no such entity as a Palestinian. There's no indigenous people group, a Palestinian. And they said, oh really? I'm discovering that very few people, even many of our preachers, are failing to connect the dots to understand the Middle East conflict. And so I, I, this week in our prophecy conference, I, I cleared it with your pastor that uh, each of our sessions stand on their own. It's not a series as often I do, walking through revelation or a uh, combination of creation and prophecy or whatever it is. Uh, but each of these sessions is on its own, hitting a subject that uh, I think is pertinent to help churches uh, get a handle on certain things. Uh, and tonight I want to deal with the subject of the Middle East conflict. And it truly is and going to be a major conflict at some time. Uh, we have many prophecies uh, in the book of Isaiah and in Jeremiah and, uh, and uh, in the book of Psalms. Even the 83rd Psalm is an appreciatory psalm. Uh, it's beseeching God on their behalf to help them, aid them in a war that has never happened. And it's all about a war. I think it's the one we just read here. Uh, and it's a war that's coming. And I can see the stage set for it, it with all of their neighbors that border them. You're, you're, I mean, all it would take is just one crazy person to, to touch the button and start the Middle East war uh, with all of its neighbors that border them right now. They're, they're ready for it. And Israel is prepared to fight a war on five fronts at the same time. Uh, they're much better prepared to fight a war than we are in the United States. And you say, well, boy, they're a little bitty country. They may be a little bitty country, but they're number nine in the military force of the world. Wow. They have some technology. Have you ever wondered, uh, have you, some of you probably got investments in the NASDAQ. We're not going to ask you to raise your hand. But did you realize that the NASDAQ is all of the technological companies? Did you realize that 89% of all of the technology companies in the NASDAQ are housed in Israel? Not the Silicon Valley. Israel. Hey, there's something about the genetics of Abraham. They're just pretty smart folks. <laughs> Amen. All right. 
And so uh, here in Zechariah we just read, God said, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. Boy, it is. And, and, and he went ahead to say, in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone, and all the people, all that burden themselves with it, shall be cut in pieces through all, through all the earth, and the people of the earth be gathered together against it. What you're watching with the regime change that has taken place in our United States of America, you have now watched Israel knows they're all alone. Do not be surprised if you wake up one morning and you discover that in the area of Old Elam, which is the western, uh, the western, southwestern side of Iran today, which is original nation of Elam, you'll find that in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis, uh, it was its own nation. You'll, you're going to wake up one of these days and don't be surprised to hear that all of the nuclear research in the mountains of western Iran have just been blown up. Israel's already done it twice. They blew up in Syria. They blew up all of the research that Syria did several years ago. They totally destroyed in one night the nuclear research. They already have done it in Iraq many years ago. They went in in one night, totally destroyed the entire complex and the entire nuclear research that Saddam Hussein was doing. It wouldn't take them but one night to take care of the research. I'm here to tell you, it's, it, it's a very great possibility. Israel realizes that every nation is gathered against them. That's one of the things that, uh, one of the prophecies. You say, well, what about the uh, uh, Abrahamic Accords that everybody's signing on to? Uh, we'll deal with that maybe here in just a minute. Uh, but uh, you need to understand, that's not anything in your Bible. And the Economic Accord, or the Abrahamic Accord that you're hearing all about, this has nothing to do with peace. It's an economic agreement. And it's all based on economics. It has nothing to do with peace. And uh, I get tired of hearing people call it a peace treaty. You see, here's the seed of the... Everything starts with a seed. God designed it on day number three, and he gave a principle on day number three that the DNA of the seed is what determines the fruit. And so let's look at the seed. What we're doing today is trying to deal with the fruit we're trying to deal uh, and understand the Middle East conflict. But you can't understand the Middle East conflict until you understand the seed from where it came. So let's look at the seed of the Middle East conflict. Genesis chapter 21, it's the weaning ceremony of Isaac. Isaac is between three and five years old. At that time in the Middle East culture, they would have, we, we call them birthdays, but it's a, it's a phase through which a child moves from one to the next. We have infants, and then we have toddlers, and then we have beginners. We have all different names for phases of children. And so at the weaning of Isaac, here's the story. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abram, mocking. Uh, wherefore, uh, she said to Abraham, Cast out that, uh, this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. 
And the thing was very grievous to Ab in Abraham's sight because of his son. Talking about Ishmael. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So get the picture. Abraham, uh, has a, uh, he's uh, 75 years old and he doesn't have an heir. Well, he needs a male heir. You know the story. He says, well, how about the Eliezer, my head servant? Uh, would it be all? And the Lord said, hey, I'm telling you, you're going to have your own seed. So he's 75 years old uh, when he leaves the Shinar Valley. God promises him at 80. When he's 86, uh, he takes matters into his own hand, uh, and he has a child by a bondwoman, Hagar, Ishmael. And then, <laughs> then God gives him a surprise at the age of 100. <laughs> so that tells me that Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac was born. Can you imagine having waited 86 years before you had a son, and now you've had 14 years with the only son you had pouring your life and instruction into the only son you have when all of a sudden you have the real son. When Sarah said, you need to kick that woman and her son out of here, you could just, that was tearing his heart out. He said, man, this, I, I, and the Lord said, it's okay. Because you need to understand, the story of Abraham and the calling of Abraham, it's not about Abraham. It's about the plan of redemption. It's all about providing the seed line for the Savior who's going to provide redemption for the whole world. So it's bigger than just Abraham. That's why he said, in thy seed shall it be. In Abraham's seed through Isaac. And so, uh, get, the, get the gist of it. So Ishmael would have been 14 or a little over when his half-brother is born. And uh, so Isaac is maybe weaned. So at the story we just looked at, Ishmael, 17 or 18 years old. He's being asked to be kicked out. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm telling you, Abraham, Abraham had a lot of tough decisions to face. I don't know if I could have put my trust in God as much as Abraham did. No wonder the Bible refers to the believing of Abraham. He believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God for a whole lot of difficult situations. And uh, no wonder he's called the father of faith. And so uh, uh, the firstborn is bypassed. Get this. The firstborn is bypassed for the secondborn in the first generation, okay? And so the next generation comes on, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled within her. She got twins, and, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord sent her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder 
elder shall serve the younger. So she's carrying twins and they're struggling in there and uh, uh, she wants to know what's going on. And the Lord said, here's what you got. You, you got two, but I need you to understand the elder one is going to end up serving the younger one. You know the story of the birth of, of the twins. Uh, and uh, so just as God had said, uh, these twins are born. And uh, Isaac, uh, uh, Jacob, and Esau. Very few people have ever spent much time trying to understand Esau. And people often read the verse when it said God hated Esau you need to you need to understand the setting of what that's saying and uh, let me help you with it just a little bit maybe and uh, in Romans he said it is written Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated why would that statement be made well the truth is Jacob you know is oh Esau is going to come in one day from hunting and he's and he's hungry <laughs> I've hunted a lot. My daddy was a fur trapper by trade and, and a hunter. And uh, uh, man, many a time I come in spitting cotton because we didn't have, we'd run out of something to drink and starving to death. So he comes in from a hunting trip and uh, man, his brother's got a, a bowl of lentils. He's got beans and rice or whatever it is and lamb going on the fire. And uh, he said, uh, man, give me something to eat. I'm about to die. You know the story, and his brother said, well, okay, uh, let's talk about this. Won't you sell me your birthright? And Esau said, ah, what good is it if I die? Go ahead, you can have it. Give me a bowl of soup, okay? And so uh, uh, that was the story. Jacob, uh, the Bible says, then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage and lint of lentils, and uh, he did eat and drink, and he rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You see, what's a birthright? Well, a birthright to most people means that the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. But there's a reason why the firstborn got a double portion. Because, see, this is before the law. This is before Moses and the children of Israel and God giving the law. From the time of Abel, or from the time of Adam... And then Abel, you know the story back there. It was time for Abel and his brother to bring an offering. Cain brought the wrong offering. Remember the story? From that point all the way until God selected the Aaronic priesthood, the eldest son of the family was the priest of the family. So if the father died, the firstborn male becomes responsible for the priesthood of the home and for his mother, if she's still living, and any siblings still at home. So as a result, the firstborn was given a double portion because of the responsibility. So when it says God hated Esau, it was because God even understood and knew in his providence and in his foreknowledge that when Esau would be born, even in his mother's womb, he knew he was going to despise his birthright. In other words, he would despise his spiritual responsibility. So what we find is he's passed over. 
So when Esau uh, sees that Isaac, you remember, uh, Isaac's about to die. He's losing his eyesight, and, and he knows he's about to die, and he likes, those, uh, he likes that venison, that roe that his boy uh, Esau is quite a hunter. He said, won't you go out and get me another deer and uh, fix it up? I'd like to have a good meal, and then I'm going to bless you. You know the story. While he's out, uh, his brother is going to uh, <laughs> his brother's going to deceive him. But that's what Jacob was. His name was supplanter, or uh, that's why God had to change his name from a deceiver to the friend of God. Amen, Israel. And so uh, uh, he tricks his daddy, and and his daddy has given the blessing of the firstborn right to the younger son. Hey, God had already said in the womb, that's what it was going to be. So, he comes in, he finds out, and he says to his daddy, can't you do something? Change it, reverse it. He said, no, I can't, it's already a done deal. But I will give you this blessing, you can read about it. And here's the reaction. When Esau, seeing the daughters of Canaan, Please not Isaac his father. Then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto him the wives which he had, Mahalah the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajoth, uh, uh, to be his wife. Here's what happened. Esau said, If you're not going to give me the first right, you don't want me to marry your half-brother's family? I'm going over to your half-brother and marry one of my half-cousins. Can you imagine what it must have been right around the campfire? When Ishmael and his son-in-law Esau sit around the campfire at night, Pop, I know how you felt. You got kicked out, didn't get what belonged to you. I know, son, you got the same treatment. I can just see what that I can just imagine what it must have been like. Hey, I don't think they're any different than you and I. I think they had the same feelings and same thoughts. Maybe even more so than I because of the kind of economy they lived in in those days. And so uh, this is what took place. And so what starts as a family feud with bitter feelings... Uh, all these centuries later has become a major conflict that the entire world is dealing with. But that's where it all began. But there's more to the story than that. So Esau's descendants are going to be given. Abraham has already given through Isaac, and he's already given to Ishmael, and God had already promised he would make 12 great nations of Ishmael. You have them today. The major Arab countries are the descendants of Ishmael. God done exactly what he said he would do. And so when Isaac divides land up, he is going to give a great portion to, Is, to, to Esau. And so uh, uh, on the east side of the Jordan River, which would be today southern Jordan, was the land of Edom, Esau's defend, descendants. Let me show you how much God honors what he did, even to those that he knew had a dislike for their spiritual responsibility. This is how God, if God has given something, I'm here to tell you, God's going to stand behind it. 
Here's how serious it was in God's mind. Children of Israel are leaving Israel, uh, Egypt. They're getting ready to go into the wilderness journey. Here's what God said. And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which shall uh, dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed to yourselves, therefore meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreath, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money and that you may eat, and ye shall buy water of them for money that you may drink. God said, I want you to know when you go through the land that was given to Esau, it's not yours. So Esau had been given a very wonderful inheritance. It wasn't that Esau did not get a good inheritance. He got a great inheritance. I don't know if you've ever been in that part of the world, but I'm here to tell you it's a beautiful place. Here is the land that was given to Esau. This is the land of Edom. So anytime you read in your Bible the name Edomites or Edom, write out beside it descendants of Esau, because that's who they are. And uh, then north of that, in the center part of modern-day uh, 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 of Jordan, is the old land of Moab. That's where the story of Ruth uh, comes out of, you know, the Moabites. And then the northern part of Jordan is the area called Ammon, or Ammon, after the two sons of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his two daughters. You know the story. And so this is where they lived. And so Ishmael did not inherit a coveted position, and Esau did not get the promised land, but what they both received was very good, but to them it was second best. They didn't get the first. I think there's a spiritual application here. And that is this, if you go through your life with only one birth, and if your first birth is not surpassed by your second birth, you can't go to heaven. You've got to be born again. I think God's giving us a wonderful display of how important it is that your second birth supersede your first birth. That's just a passing thought. And so, far from encouraging them to forgive and forget, I'm convinced they continued in their hostilities. And I know from history that they did. They certainly did, and they still are. And so the land given to Esau became known as Edom because of its spectacular red rocks. It's a beautiful place. If, if you ever get to go to over there, I'd encourage you, if you can go, uh, things are a whole lot different than they were a few years back. But it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, uh, these are some of the canyons and the floor. It's just an absolutely gorgeous place. This is where Petra is. Uh, this is where uh, the woman we talked about a while ago, uh, this is where the woman in the tribulation of Israel is going to flee to, uh, the, the city of Petra. It's an unbelievable place that is carved out of the actual stones in, the, in these red mountains. It's an amazing place. And if you get a chance to go sometime, I'd encourage it. Uh, I don't know if in your Israel trip you're going to go to Jordan or not, but if you do, this is beautiful. 
It's awestruck. And uh, so as a result, Edom was destroyed. Uh, what happens is, uh, uh, let me back it up just a minute. Uh, <clears throat> Edom is ending up, the Edomites, when the Babylonians are getting ready to take over Jerusalem. The Edomites saw their opportunity. And they thought, if we join in with, uh, if we join in with the uh, uh, with the Babylonians, and we cut off the retreat as the Jews were fleeing out of the southeastern part of Israel in, into their land, if we block it, then what we will have is Babylon will like us, and we'll end up getting what our forefather Esau was cheated out of. But it didn't work very good. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear. As a result, in Obadiah chapter number 1, every one of them to the last man was killed by the Babylonians. So keep that in the back of your mind. Jump forward all the way to 135 A.D., and Hadrian is the emperor of Rome. The final revolt uh, of the uh, Jewish revolt is now taking place. Bar Hakoba, uh, a leading rabbi of the time, had convinced them he's the Messiah. Uh, they alter their calendar so that this is the 490th year of Daniel's prophecy. It's being fulfilled. Hey, I'm your Messiah. We're out. We're going to be victorious and break the yoke off of us and have the millennial reign. It didn't work out very good. As a matter of fact, in 134 A.D., over a million Jews were killed, and all the rest of them had the final dispersion among the rest of the world. So what did Hadrian do? He said, you know, the, our, our records is filled with this. Uh, every so often we have a major insurrection out of these Jews. Uh, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down to Jerusalem and we're going to raise it. We're going to destroy every single building in Jerusalem. We're going to destroy it, including digging up its foundations. Then we're going to haul in at least 15 feet of dirt and completely cover over. Now you need to understand, today it's called the city of David. That's original Jerusalem. That was the city Jebus that David took in 1005 B.C. And so uh, in 135 he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to destroy all of this. And in order to eradicate their history, we're going to change the name of this area. We're going to call the entire area now Palestine. So, it's been renamed. The modern day people that refer to them to Palestinians are not really Palestinians at all. There are no, there is no indigenous peoples group Palestinian. None. None at all. As a matter of fact, by their own DNA, they are one of three people. They're either an Ishmaelite, an Arab, they're an Ammonite, or a Moabite. That's what their DNA is. There is no Palestinian. Isn't it amazing how, how politicians and tradition can be more powerful than facts and truth? This is where we live today. And so uh, uh, the, uh, the area of the Levant... 
I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but uh, jump back to uh, now forward about 1,200 years and you're going to come to the, uh, to the Crusades. Remember what took place in all of those, the battles that took place? The Islamic forces and then the, the Catholic forces, the Crusaders and all of it's all about Jerusalem. Realize Jerusalem has been a troublesome place. Uh, Forty-eight times it's been under siege, and, and it's been occupied back and forth twenty-nine different times. Uh, no, no other city in all the world has ever experienced what Jerusalem has. Uh, it's certainly been a troublesome place. So uh, uh, we find Muhammad, who is a descendant of Ishmael, he's developed this religious system, and he's trying to convince everybody in the area uh, uh, about uh, this is the way to worship. We want to worship the moon god Allah. Well, it didn't work with the Jews uh, and the Israelites, and so they began the campaign of murdering everybody. And if you didn't submit to Islam, we whack your heads off and uh, so uh, uh, this hostility uh, is now becoming a religious hostility. For almost a thousand years or a little over, this area of the Middle East called the Levant was under total domination of Islam. Remember a few years ago we had a president who was dealing with a group called ISIS. And uh, we called it ISIS, that's the Islamic State of Islamic uh, uh, Syria, or not Syria, but whatever, anyway, ISIS. And, and, um, but our, uh, the president we had at the time always called them ISIL, the Islamic State of the Islamic Levant. You need to understand those are code words that an Islamic person uses. He never ever called them ISIL. They were always, I mean ISIS, they were always ISIL. Because Muhammad had said that everything that has ever under the control of Islam, Allah has promised it will never be relinquished to an infidel. So the Islamic Levant, as a result of World War I and the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, Turkey was defeated in World War I, and the Ottoman Empire was broken up. As a result, the Levant is going to be, and all of the area called Palestine, is going to be divided up uh, under the uh, Transjordan uh, divide that's going to happen as a result of World War I and World War II. And you're going to have France and England Spain, but Spain falls out of the situation. And they're the ones that are going to divide up this Levant. And, of course, Israel is going to be a part of the Transjordan and later in 48 become their own nation. And all of this is all broken up. This is called the Levant. It's the crossroads between Europe and Asia. This is the middle point. This is where you get into Africa. This is where you get into Asia. And this is where you get into Europe. And so that's why your Bible calls it the, pro, uh, the, pro, uh, uh, the pleasant land. And this is where your Antichrist is going to go back and forth through here because it is the land bridge from the west and north and east down south and back and forth. It's all right there. So it was divided up as a result of World War I. In the early 1900s, the most unimaginable thing happened, and that is this. For the third time now, 
the descendants of Ishmael are asked to step aside for the descendants of Isaac. This is more. This is more than an Ishmaelite can handle. We've had control of this area for a thousand years. Now the world is asking us to step back and give these Jews this land. The descendants of Ishmael that got passed over way back yonder. We've had it. But now we're asked to give it up again. So they're asked to step aside. And, and God was bringing his people back. Why? Because God has seven years of prophecy to finish with Israel. The first 483s of that 490-year prophecy uh, that God gave to, uh, to uh, Daniel have been fulfilled with Israel in its land. The last seven years will be finished with Israel in its land. The Israel of today is the Israel for end-time prophecy. Don't let anybody tell you that the Israel of today is irrelevant to Bible prophecy. That means they know nothing about Bible prophecy. Because they were in their land for the first 483 years of that prophecy, and they will be in their land for the last seven years of it. Maybe tomorrow night we may cover a study, an overview of the book of Daniel tomorrow night. I think we can help you with that. And uh, so uh, <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 37 and the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones began in World War I. Remember the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones? He said, what are you seeing? And, and the prophet says, a bunch of dry bones. He said, won't you preach to them? Why well, prophesy to them? And all of a sudden they start, start reassembling. And he said, what are you going to see? Oh, man, they're putting themselves together. He said, now preach to them. And, and now flesh comes upon the bones. And four different phases in Ezekiel 37. We've already watched two of them in the life of Israel. The bones have gathered together and flesh is on them again. They're a nation again. Why? Because God has said, I am not bringing you back. Ezekiel chapter 28, he said, I'm not bringing you back because you deserve it. I'm bringing you back because of my name's sake. I put my name on the line with Abraham and I'm going to finish what I said I'd do. And so God's bringing them back and, and the vision or the valley of dry bones. And so here, here's the church age. We're about out of here. And here's where Israel's getting ready to go. They're already, folks, you got to understand, we're not, the, the end times are not like going to a play where they got a big curtain drawn across the stage. And uh, they're going to pull the curtain for scene one and you're, you see act number one and then they pull the curtain and they change all the scenery for act number two. That's not how it's going to be. When the tribulation takes place, it's just the day after the day before. The stage is already being set. You're watching it being set today. Israel has to be back in her land. And what you're watching with this coronavirus thing and the vaccination in Israel, you're watching how blind Israel is to the leadership of the spirit of Antichrist. It will be simple for them to see the Antichrist as their deliverer. Just, I mean, just like, man, I'm watching it. It's, it's, it's almost eerie to watch. It violated the sense of ownership to a Muslim to an Islamic individual, the promise of Allah has supposedly, through Muhammad's writing, anything that has ever been under their control, it's theirs. It's never to be given up again. This is more than they can handle. 
When you hear about Iran and you hear about the Palestinian bunch over there, when you hear about them talking about driving Israel into the sea and annihilating Israel, you need to understand why. Because they're hardcore Islamics. They really believe that it belongs to them. They really believe that Allah is going to stand behind what he said. It belongs to us and we're going to have it one way or the other. This is what's taking place over there right now. And so, of course, by now, the majority of Muhammad's followers are not just uh, sons of, Is uh, of Ishmael, but they're, Palis they're Persians and, and Egyptians and Babylonians and Assyrians. Uh, that's using Bible names. You see, Iran is not Arab. Iranians are Persians. Persians, if you understand where they came from, they actually came out of Europe and moved back down again just after the end, of about 100 years or 200 years after the story of Babel. They're Persians out of the Europe that came back down. Uh, uh, but what ties all of them together is their Islamic faith, is their belief in, in the, as a Muslim. And so the conflict today isn't between Ishmaelites and Israelites, it's between Muslims and Jews. But it all goes all the way back to the first two generations, the firstborns got bypassed for the secondborns. It all goes back to there. So the family feud has become a battle of religions uh, between the descendants of two sons. Now I want to bring you to the present. Now that we understand the seed of it, now that we understand a little bit of the development of it, I want you to see where we are today and why it's important. When General Allenby, who was in charge of the English forces, when they defeated the Ottoman Empire in World War I, he was a, was a student of prophecy. Allenby's father was a preacher, an Anglican preacher. And he grew up in a Christian home and he understood this is a very prophetic event. We have defeated the Islamic forces. He understood that Israel and the, the, the Ezekiel 37 is probably taking place. And he realizes this is important, but he doesn't quite understand the Islamic faith. So he does something uh, in, uh, that uh, is setting the stage for this. He's going to install as the mayor of Jerusalem. We've defeated the Islamic people. They're done for. So in order to try to bring these people together in the Middle East, uh, he takes the highest Islamic cleric. He takes Husseini and he makes him the mayor of Jerusalem. Well, <clears throat> at the dedication of this, he's got an 11-year-old nephew that he's raising. His 11-year-old nephew attends, and when he gets to the age of uh, uh, 35, he makes his pilgrimage uh, uh, to uh, Mecca, and uh, when you make your pilgrimage there, you get another addition to your name. And so now he is Haja. Uh, El Husseini, and uh, he becomes the highest, over the next decade, he becomes the highest level Moffat over Islam in the area. So Allenby makes the Muslim cleric the mayor. His nephew now has become 
the leading overall of Islam in that area. And uh, he's got a nephew that he's raising. And uh, the, his hatred of the Jews is so great that uh, there's a second war getting ready to take place. So what does he do? Uh, he picks up what's called the Edomite cause. The Edomite cause is that the land should belong to the Edomites, not Israelites. It goes all the way back. So it's called the Edomite cause. Getting this land back for Esau's descendants. That's what it's really all about. And so uh, uh, it's the Edomite cause. And so what is he going to do at the start of World War II? He goes to Germany. And he sits down with Hitler. And he discusses how they can eliminate the Jews. We, we talk about how Hitler and, and the gas camps and all and the wicked things of the Holocaust. But very few people understand that Hitler did not start out with that design. Hitler got included or in, coerced into it because of the favors that he was going to get. Hitler got hundreds and thousands of Islamic soldiers to fight on his side because he's agreed to try to help eliminate the Jews so the Edomites can get their land. So once again, the Edomite cause is revived, and here he is. He's setting November 28, 1941. Here he is again. Here he is inspecting Nazi troops, Islamic Nazi troops. And here he is at the creation of the Arab League after World War II. Well, he's got a, he's got a nephew by the name of Yasser Arafat. <laughs> you can't make these things up, folks. That was the nephew he was raising. <laughs> and Yasser Arafat started the Palestinian Authority, which was a terrorist organization, and it still is a terrorist organization, even though it's called the Palestinian Authority today. And uh, so, uh, uh, boss is the leader today. And so, uh, here he is. Here's the leaders of it. But what does the Bible have to say about it? That's really what I want to know. Because everybody is all worked up about what's going to happen in the middle. Are they going to have a two-state solution? Are they going to do this, all this, and all that? Let me help you. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Jeremiah, Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Edom and his purposes, that he hath purposed against the inhabitants of Timon. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their habitation desolate with them. What's the Bible got to say about the Edomite cause? 
Is there any hope at all for the Palestinian movement of our day, which is nothing but the Edomite cause? Is there any hope for it? Well, look at what the Bible says. He said in Obadiah, he said, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possession, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. Wow. Malachi says, whereas Edom saith, we're impoverished, but we will uh, we'll return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they'll build, but I'll throw it down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, uh, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. I don't know about you, but that's pretty ironclad with me and God. Amen. Your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will magnify himself in the border of Israel. Send them a million or two dollars and they'll build it up some, some tunnel somewhere with their concrete instead of building a building for their people to live in. And what happens? Oh, they build it up, I'll tear it down. They'll build it up, I'll tear it down. It's amazing. You're looking at the border fence between Gaza and Israel. I've been there. This is the border fence between Gaza and Israel. The Bible calls it the border of wickedness. That's what it's all about. And so uh, no matter what president, no matter what dignitary, from no matter what country, no matter what kind of a deal they try to come up with, no matter what it is, I'm here to tell you, it is not going to work. It will not be until the King of Kings, the King of Prince, and the King of Peace rules on the throne. This is too deep, too far back, too broad. It's kind of like the swamp. It's deeper than you thought and it's bigger than you thought. There never has been and there never will be until the king of kings rides back on the horse. They're going to work at it. Our last president done his best to try to have a peace thing. I understand all of that. I appreciate their intentions. But I'm here to tell you there is zero hope for the Palestinian movement. You can take it to the bank of heaven. God's already wrote it in the book. So we need to just take God's word on it. Amen. Well, he said, when you see these things, know that it's near even at the door. What is it that is on the other side of that door is seven years of tribulation. We're not walking through that door. We're going through a door to heaven before it happens. The rapture is going to take place. Amen. Very few things need to take place before the tribulation. Honestly, the, the things that yet need to take place are easily to be done in a matter of days. This is where, how close we are. The stage is rapidly setting preparations for the temple. As we looked at Sunday morning, it's already, uh, everything's in place. Two things are preventing it from happening. First of all, there is the rapture. You and I and our presence is holding back the final days of prophecy. So the Lord's going to take us out of here so he can finish his prophecy with Israel. Man, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Man, I'm listening every day. I got up this morning, looked at the floor and said, not heaven. <laughs> no. 
My neuropic feet said it's not heaven either. Amen. Need to understand. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you need to understand God loves you. Don't blame God if an individual goes to hell. God's already done everything He can by sending Christ to Calvary's cross. It becomes your responsibility to change your destiny. You can change your destiny from hell to heaven by receiving Christ as your Savior. Nobody can do it for you. You can't do it for anybody. But we do have the opportunity. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, you need to understand God loves you to the degree beyond your ability to comprehend. Would you send your son to die for a wicked, sinful world? But God did. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I hope tonight you'll understand what the Palestinians are about and what the Middle East conflict really is. It goes all the way back.